Welcome to the Hyperpod. This is episode number three. Piran and I are thrilled to welcome Nivi Thadassina, Vice President, Head of Engineering of Wireless Networks at Samsung Electronics of America, as our guest today. Thanks for joining us today, Nivi. Well, um, thank you to both of you uh, for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to see you both. So, Nivi, how did you come to find your way at Samsung, and what has your career path looked like? Maybe we can start with your personal background and how that has shaped you. So, my background is in electrical engineering. So, uh, I studied electrical engineering. Uh, my current role is uh, with Samsung. I'm in the networks division, and uh, I'm the vice president for engineering for Samsung. So I'll get to it in, in a bit. So I came to the States uh, from India right after my high school. And and pretty much I followed the path of my my uncles and aunts, you know how it is, right? In my family, it was all about, is all my aunts are doctors and physicians. So the expectations is the girls in our family would go become doctors. And my all my uncles are in engineering. Um, my Uncle who first came to States, I mean, he was, uh, he, he is an IIT, one of the gold medalists. And he came to California and then, and then he pulled all of us. And so that's how I ended up here in States. Uh, so I knew right away that I would be getting into engineering and, and also knew that I would be getting into electrical engineering on top of that. So I was in North Carolina, studied, and I finished in three and a half years at, uh, in North Carolina. And then after that, it was a horrible time for look, to look for a job. And this was in late 80s. And in those days, he used to mail resumes. We would look up an ad in a newspaper and we would mail and then we would be fed by the phone. And finally, the phone rang. And this was from a company in Dallas. And I never envisioned it, but I ended up in the semiconductors. Uh, so, so I started my career as a process engineer and, and working in the manufacturing industry. So I had an opportunity to look at how things are done in scale, right? You follow a process and and then you have deals on, on the manufacturing. And so I had an opportunity to understand how the production, manufacturing, scale, and whole semiconductor industry. So that fascinated me. I said, you know what, let me just go get my master's. So I enrolled in master's as a VLSI. And that's when I met Dr. Balsara. He was my, he was UTD and he, he was the one who taught me VLSI. And so that intrigued me enough to a point that I started applying for jobs within my same company, which is SGS Thompson, uh, as a VLSI designer. So I did done it for three years as a VLSI designer. Meanwhile, I was also taking classes still at UTD in master's. And I needed to take an elective, right? So I needed to take some electives. So I said, okay, what do I do, right? So there was this class on telecom and so I enrolled in it and the professor was, he was a manager at uh, Alcatel, Dr. Krish Prabhu. And some of you may have heard of him. I eventually became a C, uh, CTO for at and I met him many years later. But the way he taught telecom was very fascinating, I thought. It's like, wow. I said, just imagine the potential of telecom. And this evolution from wireline to wireless. So right away, I knew that, okay, hey, this is the path I would like to pursue, right? VLSI was great. It gave me an opportunity to pay attention to details. And then soon after I finished my master's, that's when I said, you know, now is the time for me to pivot. And then, then I applied at a couple of companies, DSC Communications and then uh, BNR. 
part of Northern Telecom Research, and now it's part of Ericsson. So, so I joined me as an R&D engineer working on the wireless space at that time with the 2G. So, so again, I mean, it's, it's amazing how things happen. I think that's why I tell everyone is that, okay, hey, is that what you learn in school and how you feel, think the world will be is not exactly how things will turn out. I think you got to give yourself an opportunity. Uh, I think most cases, people take usually three to five years, some cases, seven years. I think before they find their niche, things that will very passionate, things that you'll wake up to every, every morning. Until today, I mean, I, I wake up to my, my Monday mornings, never tired of work. I mean, even this week, I mean, is, is pretty much my entire team is off, but I decided to keep the lights on. And because I was not doing anything, it's not that I, I don't have vacation, plenty of vacation, but it's the fact that it's just a, such a fascinating field passion. and passion, right? And so, at that point, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and, and that's why I, mean, I tell everyone, right? It's like, okay, hey, take your time, especially new graduates, right? What you're doing today is not necessarily what you'll end up with, right? Try to understand your job. And the best part is that when you work for someone is companies, Usually when they hire you, they hire you for a purpose. They hire you for a reason. Yes. And they want you to get certain work done. And and it's not, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but it's not the best interest of the employee sometimes. It's the best interest of the work because end of the day, we have to meet the numbers and get certain things done. But then at the, at the end of the day, I think you as an individual have to figure out, okay, hey, do I really want to, can I go above and beyond? Can I finish my work? do the best I can so that so that the company knows that, okay, I'm committed. And at the same time, also find some time to to see, okay, is this was really what you want to do for the next 30 years? That's something that even we see from the venture capital side is some of the founders when they're working at Google or Meta, right. Apple, is their purpose. So some of that inception starts even at that when right they're, when they're there at those companies even samsung and uh, you know we see it in the on the founder side whether it's their pivoting we've seen founders pivot right. their business yeah just finding what their right. wheelhouse is what's their niche niche right and uh, what's their purpose and right what makes them wake up in the morning excited about tomorrow exactly and so we see it from exactly the side. exactly and, and that's what i say right is that it's, it's a constant learning process and the learning never ends. And I know we'll be talking about AI, but I mean, that's what AI is all about, right? Is that is the difference between an AI versus what we were doing in the past. I mean, I mean before it was just automation, it was purely rules-based and, and it's about able to learn and get better and better. And eventually some people find the right path. For sure. And then maybe could we go into a little bit about what the big tech players like Samsung look like from a scale perspective today? I know you talked about it kind of in your background, talking about the scale perspective of the semiconductor. So bringing the past kind of to the present now, what is it looking like today? Um, obviously, Samsung is a lot of different markets and sub-verticals, but our particular right. interest is from the B2B side of the business. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'll tell you is even my son, right, is, I mean, he has worked a few places and recently had a job offer from from a Japanese company and and I got excited and I told him I said hey you should definitely take that 
And so six months later, I mean, he's, he says, dad, you were right. Absolutely right. And, and the reason I say that is because is I think Samsung, the reason, and that's part of the reason why I stayed at Samsung for this long is that is the way they operate, not only in terms of is not only the, the size that we are at, if you look at Samsung, this is a huge company, right? We have like 35 production facilities, 40 R&D centers, 15 regional headquarters, uh, 270,000 people, 75 different uh, countries, right? And, and, and you can see this, the massive and the scale, and we're in pretty much every space. Even though it's a, such a large company, the way we operate is makes me feel that, okay, we have the scale, we have the necessary finances, but at the same time, we're also very, very nimble, right? And when you think about nimble, what, what do you think of? Startups, right? And I was part of startups. So I've seen both sides, right? Like, as I tell you, as I mentioned, it's like when I started, I was in production, scale, and all that. And then eventually I went joined startup. So I have an opportunity to see what startup really means. And then I'm now working for Samsung, and Samsung has the best of both worlds. And that's exactly what you know, my son, I mean, he came back and said, you know what, the amount of transparency, the visibility, responsibilities, the what he's learning, he would have to go to some other company for a couple of years to learn in the same sure. time span as, as me. Sure. And so, so, and that's what Samsung is. So we are in pretty much every space and I'm part of the networks division and what we do, and a lot of people don't know, haven't heard of Samsung's networks division. They know they're aware of the, all the consumer products, phones, and so on, but we also have networks division. So as an example, in U.S., I mean, is that Samsung is building, helping Verizon. We are Verizon's one of the, there are customers all the way from, from Dallas to the Northeast market, right? So any cell tower that you're looking at, all of these things is actually have Samsung um, hardware, gear, and the software that runs behind it. And... The way we got into this is that, as I said, Samsung has a lot of strengths and we have ability to to manufacture, not only design hardware, but also manufacture at scale. And so all of that done is in-house. Plus at the same time, our biggest strength, I would say is definitely is semiconductor chips. We can make the chips. And some of the chips that we are, that are needed to, to go enable 5G, especially the, the different variants of 5G, is, is that a company like Samsung, I mean, is, is well-suited to go do it. And that's part of the reason why uh, we had an edge. Uh, when we got into this space, I mean, we had an edge. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Several years ago, when, when we were trying to figure out how to gain market share in the U.S., how to break the barriers, how to break the, you know, the incumbents, right? It was not an easy uh, if you just bring in another Me Too product, no one would be interested in why, why Samsung, right? I already have this from my ex ex existing incumbents. And so what made us very unique, a, a key differentiator for us is our ability to manufacture, build chipsets. And that's exactly what we did by introducing a, a small miniature, it looked like set of box, now, now people call it Femto, but even before Femto, it was called, we used to call it internet radio. So essentially what it is, is you would bring the box, plug it into your uh, ethernet uh, broadband backhaul, and then, and then all of a sudden it becomes a cell tower. Wow. And now the question is, generally that sits on a big, 
uh, cell tower tops is a heavy gear equipment. We were able to shrink it down to a pound, maybe less than a pound in your palm. And it has all the intelligence that it would for a, a big cell site. And the reason why we were able to do that is because of our abilities to shrink it, package it, uh, put it on a small chip. I mean, so only a company like Samsung, I think, can come up with such innovative technologies. And, and, and that really helped us, by the way, to, to get into uh, Verizon because that really, different. we brought in something unique, something differentiator, and we sold millions of those in the U.S. Amazing. How do you define the scope of your current role and what's your priorities in this current time? Mm. Good question. So, so as I said, I'm currently running the engineering for Samsung's networks uh, division. So my scope is for U.S. market. So anything to do with any customer in U.S. is part of my scope. The best, best way I would describe my uh, job or my role is maybe in three parts, right? I have three primary responsibilities. One is deployment side. When I say deployment is is that uh, there could be two things. One is uh, new site construction or migration of incumbent, whoever it might be, the operator has to, to Samsung. And we have a separate installation deployment services organization where my role comes in is, is with respect to once it's installed and once it's powered on, the all the integration, the RF, and making sure the performance meets the, the expectation, so on. So the, all of that comes under that uh, deployment piece uh, I mentioned. The second role is uh, new product introduction. So it could be hardware, it could be software, and it could be new technology, right? So all the development is done in Korea, and we do the testing here, make sure that it meets the customer and US requirements. And then at the same time is there is a process called FOAP process and there are different names for it. First office application, we call it. What that means is that we said this product will do the XYZ and, and it has certain criteria um, in terms of performance metrics, quality metrics. And does it really meet those criteria that we said on a piece of paper before a customer placed an order? And so there's a process that you go through and uh, before the customer says, yes, it's accepted. And then they decide to roll it out, right? So that's the new product introduction. The third is once the product is up and running, the all the maintenance and support, the warranty, anything that needs to be done. So if, if someone is having, if call drops as an example, right? The first call usually goes to the operator and and they look at it, and if they think that, okay, hey, they need help from Samsung, they contact us. Generally, the rule of thumb is if, I mean, anytime you see it, any type of massive network disruptions, usually my team gets called, and, and so we are all hands-on. The bridge is set up, and then and then we don't drop the bridge until the problem is rectified. So so that's, that's I mean, that's pretty much is my uh, domain of coverage in terms of the role. In terms of priorities, I would say is that is, I mean, if I were to look at how it is today, right, is one of the things that Samsung is networks, especially what we're doing is we are slowly gaining market share. Now, how do you gain market share, right? There are two ways. One is if there are any greenfield opportunities, meaning is that, I mean, 
they never had a wireless network so dish networks is a good example and and so so we are helping them with that second one is is pretty much i mean there's already incumbent for whatever reason is that business decision was made to migrate take out that replace that vendor with with samsung right and so when you do go through the process one of the things that and i have key, key metrics in terms of it has to meet the performance standards. If I'm replacing an existing product, bottom line is the, the replacement product has to meet the existing uh, performance criteria, right? And not only meet, but also exceed. There's a reason why they're replacing with, with us has to exceed. So same thing with uh, new sites. So having meet, meeting the performance criteria is ultimate. Second thing is is that when, like I talked about new uh, new product introduction. So the, the bottom line is that two key metrics there, the delivery of the product and the quality and consistency of the product, right? And we have a lot of very high standards in terms of what is it that we need to do in order before we can get to the customer, right? And there's a lot of steps involved in terms of how do you make sure of that? And, and all of those things, there are performance metrics. In general, I'm, I'm pretty data oriented, meaning is that I believe that data doesn't lie. And so anything that, that my team does is pretty much is proven through, through data, right? We establish key metrics and say, how do you meet those metrics? And here are the numbers that shows that we are meeting the um, metric and we're headed in the right direction. The other area also, uh, which is very, very important is I talked about third part, right? Which is like maintenance of the network. So what does that mean? What it means is that, is that it's a complex network it's vulnerable to 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 anything seasonality factors the traffic shaping how traffic changes all these things can uh, lead to some challenges and problems how do you go how do you how can you catch this in a proactive manner before they become a problem how do you pinpoint these things and you you know that based on where it's headed eventually it's going to become a problem right and that's that's where is the reason I call it a priority is because I have metrics in terms of how that is done, right? And the very first question I usually ask my team is if if there is a network incident, did we see that? Why didn't we see that? What is it that we could have done to catch it even before it became an incident, right? And, and this is where I think the tools and and eventually I think AI and all these things will really help us. And these are some of the things we are looking at. For sure, we're going to definitely touch upon that. Uh, <clears throat> further on. Yeah, and then maybe going back kind of to the personal side, uh, we want to talk a little bit about who your mentors were coming up and also how that shaped your leadership. Right. Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, I had a lot of people uh, in my life. Uh, I was fortunate. Just focusing on the leadership uh, part of it that you mentioned is, I mean, like even when I joined Samsung, I joined Samsung as, a, as an engineer, right? Uh, I was not I didn't walk into a leadership role and eventually ended up in a leadership role. So what that means is it's a constant learning process, right? And and I this is something I think through. I have a very large organization now and I, I think through in terms of what type of manager I want to be. And I always put myself in the shoes when I was first started as an engineer, looking up, right? Looking up and how the decisions are made and so on. And... My very first job, I mean, I was fortunate. Um, Barry Nugent, um, he was my manager uh, at SES Thompson. And um, 
And I think the, his management style was different. And I think that really helped me. He was more of a, you know, like the, the servant leadership, they call it essentially having everyone involved. And his role was mostly in terms of, okay, hey, how do I make sure that I provide necessary tools and foundation in order for you to be successful? And there is a reason I hired you. And so I, I trust my judgment and I put in confidence in you. And so now my role is to make sure that I provide you the necessary sounds foundation. Like a, sounds like a player's coach. <laughs> player's, player's coach, coach. yeah. That's right, yeah. And, and I think what it, it has done definitely is help boost my confidence, right? Uh, now the question is, is that leadership style functional in all organizations? Uh, it depends, right? Like when I moved to BNR, Nortel, most of the management over there, I felt was uh, more of a, like a vision oriented uh, management style. They, they set the big vision. This is where we need to get to. Here are the things that needs to happen. And more of a uh, vision oriented. And a lot of times is that it's always great to have that, but then you also need leadership in terms of how do you bridge from where we are at today? What are the current challenges and how do you bridge that, right? How do you connect, connect those dots? So I've been exposed to that. And, and then of course, I mean, at Samsung is, I see a combination of several things. As I said, remember, I mean, I mean, Samsung, we are a large company at the same time. It's also very nimble, very reactive. And so it's like a more of a situational type of management styles because in able to react and respond to things. And remember, we are part of the uh, regional office in US, right? The R&D, usually when they look at it, they look at it five years, 10 year maps. Here we look at it uh, generally one to two years. It's more of a situational responding to uh, the market needs uh, on top of looking at the roadmap as well. So I've been exposed to that, but in general, I think when you talk to my team, I think generally you'll see lead by example type of leadership. And my mindset is mostly is that is why would I give someone, ask someone to do something when I, when in fact I hate to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so, and recently, I mean, I did at Samsung, there was the, they had featured me in, in Samsung as part of luncheon. And one of the questions uh, someone asked me was like, SNEV is, is like, you're a VP, but, but how can we get into the details? Like when we come present information, I mean, you get into a lot of technical details and, and it's not intentional, right? And I don't get into the details on every specific item, but at the same time, I like to understand the pain points behind it, right? Before I ask someone to go do something, saying that, like, hey, Piran, I want you to take care of figuring out, you know, Calder performance on in Pittsburgh area. And, and I don't want to give you that assignment at 5 p.m. on a Friday evening when I know that that assignment will keep you up all night, Friday night, right? So I understand the complexity and criticality and so on. So, and so this is, this is how it enables me to be connected with the people. So that way, that way, I know that I'm being fair, and I know that is Piran himself can do these jobs. He will need help. Uh, I know it needs to be done, but it needs, it needs help. And so that's part of the reason. I think it's usually, I mean, I would say it's more of a lead by example. I mean, leadership style, I mean, I've used, yeah. It's the best leadership style. Yeah, it sounds like a great leadership <laughs> right there. So 
Wondering if we can switch back to a little bit more of the technical side. Can you walk us through the approach to modern networks mm. and how it has changed yeah. with innovations around 5G and cloud? Yeah, um, especially in, in wireless, um, there, there has been a lot of big changes, right? So, I mean, more most are aware of uh, the 4G to 5G transitions. And if you look at Samsung, right, and if you look at uh, our current customer, is um, we are not part of their 4G network. We are part of their 5G network, okay? And... And generally, when you when you go through this technological changes, there's this a great inflection point uh, in terms of is is modernization of the network. And so, so today's networks have changed significantly. So traditionally, it used to be you would have a piece of hardware and then a software that runs only on that piece of hardware, and then the software and the hardware are tied together. You got you got to get it from the same manufacturer. But now things have been virtualized, okay? And and what does that mean? It means that you can get hardware from any of the traditional Dell or HP and, and so on. And then you can install uh, Samsung software or uh, anyone who, who has virtualized systems. And, and then on top of that is the, the, as part of the evolution also, there is open RAN, we call it. And... And you heard the term probably open RAN, but I think what what that means is is not a, it's open means that is as I said before the hardware and software uh, used to be tied together, but now that has been decoupled. But now you also the next box I would call it is the the in infrastructure which is like stuff that hangs on the top of the cell tower, and that's mostly uh, most of it is hardware, right? Mm -hmm. And another question, how do you get that hardware to talk to anything at the bottom of the base station, uh, bottom of the cell tower, which is like base station, we call it. I mean, so that's where the openness comes in. And and so so why is that important, right? Why, why, is, why is everyone talking about it? Even lately, you saw 18th's big announcement. They talked about virtualization and open. And in in a very simplistic term, the way I, I, I can explain that is, is you're, you guys are aware of the RFP process. And so generally what happens in telecom in, in wireless in the past is that they do an RFP and then they select a vendor and then they then say, okay, here is the region you go deploy, right? Mm -hmm. In that order, right? So they do an RFP and they go through the process and then they select a uh, location region and they say, okay, this is where you uh, deploy it. But where I think once once you virtualize and once you make it open, how things will change is that the process now is going to be re reversed. The the US operators can select a region, doesn't matter where it is. They know already know they'll install the hardware. It could be Dell, HP, doesn't matter what it is, and they'll install the open RAN radios from whoever whichever vendor. And then they can do an RFP process, and then after that they'll select a vendor. And now they get to decide, okay, hey, okay, this side, which vendor needs to have the software and so on. So the whole process can be re reversed and it could be very nimble. Mm -hmm. And time to market in terms of from the, from the RFP selection process to actually up and running, timelines significantly shrinks. Mm -hmm. And so this provides a, a huge advantage to the operators because is not only A, is, is the, the timelines, uh, to commercializations have shrunk, but at the same time, also it makes a cell site very portable. Meaning, is 
Today it could be Ericsson, tomorrow it could be Samsung. Today it's Samsung, it could be tomorrow, it could be Ericsson, right? And some of the portability uh, in terms of the stickiness factor is no longer there, right? Tougher, exactly tougher. The other thing also I'll add on the uh, modern networks is, is 5G has done something very amazing. Uh, before 5G is that, I mean, like we had 3G, 4G, and they all always had certain types of waveforms and they were only operating in certain bands, okay? With 5G, 5G has laid the foundation, in my view, is that now it doesn't matter whether it's a sub, uh, sub one gigahertz or sub two gigahertz or sub six gigahertz or millimeter wave, uh, 20, 30, 40 gigahertz. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because one, one of the things it has done is that uh, the numerology, meaning is that how the waveform adapts to different frequency bands, all of those things are incorporated as part of the, uh, the 5G layer, a foundation layer. So what it does is that you no longer have to go in and go from 4G to 5G like, like as we have today, right? Because in 5G, we wanted to go do more things, higher frequencies, different bands, the latency, ultra latencies, ultra wide band, meaning push more and more uh, bits per hertz and so on. And now all of that is part of this 5G foundation. So I think, and, but at the same time, it also made the networks more and more complex. I think this is a perfect segue into my next question is, so now let's talk about the big topic on everyone's mind, which is obviously AI, right? I suspect you've been thinking about this for quite some time, even though it's you know been the hot topic for most of the startup e ecosystem. What is your assessment of where we are at in the AI technology cycle? But more importantly, I want to know what is how is AI influencing the next wave of 6G telecommunications? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, good question. At Samsung, uh, we are paying uh, close attention to it. And also at the same time, also have done some work in that space. And, and I've seen use cases sure. uh, which blew my mind. So, like, for instance, when you talk about AI, right? I mean, what is really AI, right? I, I know you've been hearing about it. And and if you were to look at, like, at least, I mean, my role, right? What we do. So before we used to think things, do things manually, right? Manually. And then we said, okay, well, I mean, if, if you're doing manually the same task again and again, so why not automate the mundane task? And so we automated it. And and now the question is, okay, now what is what does that mean? I mean, I mean, why do, you, why do I need AI? Now we're automating things intelligently, okay? And there's a difference there. And and so like when you talk about automation, what it means is that most of the automation is rule-based, right? Okay. If you see this, this is the decision you should make and, and you program it in, and then, and this is the outcome. And if you don't like the outcome, then what do you do? You go back to the code and, and change it. So you have to have a programmer go in and make modification to the code and change it. And I mean, that's how the automation is done. But now is with AI, intelligent automation or how we are getting things done is that now it's no longer, you no longer have to go back and change the code. It changed essentially feeding a different data models, right? And that's where the machine learning, by the way, com comes into picture is that is is now the emphasis is on the algorithms to help it 
look at the data or the patterns and, and learn from it and constantly learn from it in, in terms of feedback mechanism. And so now all of a sudden with AI is it's not only able to see, but also hear, but also at the same time able to learn. And that's exactly what we do, right? I mean, we constantly, I mean, I mean, is, is, is through all these means is how we do it. And, and that's the reason why, like, for instance, I mean, like the machine learning, there are a lot of different models out there in terms of the, the, uh, the amount of parameters that it can digest and learn from it is totally uh, amazing. So now the question is, is AI has been around for a long time. People have been talking about AI. Even when I was in undergraduate, there was a class in AI. And, and in the past, I think the AI was mostly, they call it discriminative AI, meaning is that like we see in Google pictures, photos. I mean, when I, when I look at a picture and I mark that as a piran on one picture, all the subsequent pic- pictures, it can look at it and say, identify, okay, this is piran, this is piran, and so on, right? So it's labeled it and then done it. So essentially, it's more of a able to take that and use it in that manner, right? It's a unidimensional. Right? Now the question is, all of a sudden, like, what is new, right? Now it became generative, right? It became generative. Now the question is, why is it that we are able to go do this now, right? And and I think there are like three or four things have happened. One is, and if you look at the data, like the data, right? I talked about the data, availability of data to learn. So the data in the public domain is what? It's pretty relatively young. I mean, I would say maybe last 10 years, 15 years or so. Now the data is all of a sudden available. There's a lot of data out there. Second thing is the compute and storage, right? And it... And that's where the quantum right, computing comes into picture because all it's going to do is further accelerate that significantly before it's really based on two states, zero and one state. Now quantum is all of a sudden uh, takes the, even a zero state into multiple states. And that's the reason why it's heavily used in cryptographics and other areas. And eventually I think you'll see this coming in. So what that means is now you're able to do a lot more computations before you just take weeks and months now you can do it in sub milliseconds the other thing that i would say is the algorithms right the ai algorithm sophistication has significantly uh, increased plus at the same time now is we have the cloud what what is cloud means scale are able to compute in parallel so you take this sophisticated algorithms break it into small tasks and now you're doing able to fragment it uh, run this task independently and then pull them together all these capabilities have have developed in the last uh, few years. Yeah, so I think that's a great segue. So with all, you know, how AI is already affected the networks already, how do you expect that to change in the future? Basically, where do you see the most value being generated because of all of these algorithms, because of all these effects that AI has had on the networks? Yeah, so the, so, I mean, uh, I think the best way for me to, uh, answer that if you look at the autonomous car, right? You have level zero through level five. Level five being is there is no steering, nothing is sitting right. right. All right. <laughs> right. So hopefully, right? And mine is a level three, by the way. <laughs> and I'm level four. Okay. Yours probably might be level four. Uh, but I think is so in terms of network uh, adoption, I would say probably we're at level two or level three. That remember that I was talking about uh, automation, right? In three, in, 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 in networks, uh, matter of fact, several years ago, there was a standardization of SON, like essentially what it means, self-configure 
and self-optimization and self-healing, mm-hmm. uh, right? So if, if you think through those things, it essentially means that networks should be able to automatically configure themselves. And if they see problems, optimize. And then if there is a problem, then able to self-heal and all those things. But but those haven't taken off yet, right? And and that's the reason why I was saying is it still requires a lot of human inter- intervention. Yes. And then when we introduced femtocell, by the way, femtocell, I'll call it was level three or level four, because it was, I could ship it to you and then you can self-install it yourself. You don't need any user's manual, right? Everything was done uh, on, on things. But I think is what's happening is the, the 5G networks are getting more and more complex. So you have a lot of different waveforms and numerologies and that's happening. And then you have in-building macro systems. And today, if, if you look at it, a wireless network has a 4G and there's a 5G, we call it non-standalone. And then now there's a standalone, which is a 5G. So essentially you have a heterogeneous, like three different technologies existing at the same time. So what, what does that mean? I mean, it's getting more and more com- complex. So there's a lot of data out there, right? So when I look at this data from my viewpoint, I mean, I look at like five different metrics in terms of 4G and 5G performance, that is the key. The another one which is also happening in the networks nowadays is that fixed wireless application. If you look at it, like uh, even uh, yesterday, I mean, T-Mobile, Verizon, I mean, your NFL networks, they were advertising uh, fixed wireless uh, access. I mean, in terms of KPIs, how do you go make it happen? The other one also is quality of the of the network and the complexity of these things. So, so why am I saying all these things is because what happens is that in order to go manage networks of that complexity with so much data, you have two options. Either you hire a very massive staff, you know, that's not scalable. At the same time, that itself will have certain challenges. Now, what do we go do? So we have access to massive amount of data. Now, how do you best make use of this data towards what we are doing in, uh, in networks? I think this is exactly where we are focusing on because we can identify a lot of signatures and patterns. And based on those patterns, we can we can eventually get back to what I mentioned, like the SON networks that it was envisioned, never realized. I think now probably we can go realize it. It's the same thing from our perspective is we're looking at the application layer of AI and how one niche solution can right. help a business with their needs. Right. And so I think for you, it's the same same topic, same right. correlation is that you're looking in that application layer. Exactly, right. And 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 but ultimately is that the AI systems, the how much production you can get out of AI systems is as good as your data that, right. that you're feeding it. That's right. And and so a lot of times people ask me, okay, hey, is like Okay, what does that mean for jobs? And and I say, you know what, the way I look at it is is like Sarosh, right? And Piran. And and with Sarosh, I give Sarosh and asking some questions and I give him a Google search. Piran, I said, you have none of that. Now who's gonna be more productive? Who is more faster, right? Because he has the tool. So the way I look at it is that I think AI will eventually replace tasks, but not jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I think that is the key, right? Is I think you need to somehow find a way to collaborate. I think the people who embrace AI uh, as part of their jobs, I think they will excel in life. So just like how the industrial revolution happened, remember when things were automated, people were become more and more productive. 
and and um, and so we're able to automate mundane tasks now with AI. Now we're able to automate intelligent tasks. So now all of a sudden, now we as a human, we can focus our mind on sure. bigger and bi- better things. So, and that's the reason why I think it's 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 important to understand that. Like even like like simple example, right? Like human mind has like hundred terabytes of think of capacity, capacity. capacity. hundred. Computers can easily outright beat that, yeah. right? So why fight it, right? Fight it. Find a way to collaborate, and 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 it will only excel. That's the only way for you to excel. Because of your visibility from your current role, what are the major security concerns in networks today, and how might that evolve with developments in AI? Yeah, a good question. Uh, so wireless, for instance, wireless is about transmitting over radio, uh, radio waves, right? Um, so it's transmitting in open. And and then once the cell tower receives it, then there is a bunch of other connections. So there are a lot of vulnerabilities um, that, that we are always concerned about. And today we are finding ways. So we have a lot of very sophisticated authentication, encryption methodologies to go do it. But the question is, is that enough, right? So typically when we look at it is any type of communication systems, you're always concerned about data interception, right? Is someone eavesdropping on your data? Second is denial of service. I mean, that that happens, doesn't matter, right? You can just pretty much take entire cell tower, entire town down. Other thing also, which is concern is that you have a cell phone, There's there could be rogue network. You think that you're talking to your own operator, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, whoever that might be, but all, all you know is you're talking to a rogue node out there. And and so, and then of course the opposite, right? Is that I'm an intruder, wireless intruder, and I'm not even a subscriber. I'm using the cell tower, or it's not even, there's no wires required. Once I'm in the network, I can do a lot of damage. So essentially, the way, where AI is going to come into picture is that its ability to recognize these patterns, right? There's always patterns uh, in everything that I've just mentioned, right? There's, a, there's signatures, there's a patterns, ability to recognize this early enough so that you fix it before it becomes a problem, right? I mean, likewise, also, I mean, a bad actor can certainly use this technology. And generally, what, that's what happens is the bad actor, all it takes is they need only one success. Right. Whereas in our case is that they, we are constantly have to defend, and and so it's it's a it's a definitely bigger challenge, and and going back to using AI able to recognize these patterns well ahead of time certainly helps, and that's exactly how I mean I mean we intend to use it. For sure. And then you know kind of going back to what we were talking about with ML, more of the frontier technologies. What other specific areas in networks that aren't AI focused are you? interested for startups to build on anything that really excites you personally besides the scope of also right yeah yeah right i mean i know there, there are a lot of things right is i'll give you a simple example i mean i was at the dfw airport flying out and and i was trying to order uber and i couldn't and so it's the next, next natural thing is that i mean i did a speed test and then all of a sudden i've i found an anomaly right in terms of my uplink speeds were faster than downlink and and things were not going through. And and so then I contacted my team and sure enough, they found a problem with a configuration issue and and they fixed it. So now the question is, I was already out of the terminal. It was terminal C. And so the team said it's fixed it, 
but the problem is i don't have we don't have an easy way to to go and say you know hey i'm from user standpoint is the problem fixed or not right uh, unless and so fortunately i found a, a a friend of mine works for tsa and i was able to get get him a phone and he was able to verify it but anyway so but the thing is that's a very primitive way of 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 debugging is there are other ways the why why i'm mentioning this is because i mean churn is 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 a big concern for an operator i mean if if you have bad experience you end up usually end up leaving so the question is how do you go about doing that industry is trying to figure this out but but I haven't come across a great tool and which 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 allows you to truly capture a sentiment of a of a user in a given market and so on. There are a lot of different ways of doing it, but it's it's just fragmented. Scalability of networks is another thing. So we, how do I know where to add a new site? How do I know where all of a sudden there's going to be event and there's going to be gush of traffic coming out of that event? Now it's going to overwhelm the cell site. Able to anticipate it and so on. And there are a lot of Techniques being used today, but it still requires a lot of a lot of manual effort uh, in order to stay ahead uh, in that game. The other thing also I would say is that, like I talked about, software quality and deliverables. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest challenges um, that that we have is able to emulate a a, a commercial network in the lab, mm-hmm. able to test all the scenarios that you envision that happens in real life in the lab environment. And so how do you go about doing that? I mean, is one simple way I, I, I tell my team is that, okay, hey, why can't we just do a replay? Replay of the all the RF propagation characteristics, traffic, how the user traffic hits the network, all the noise factors, even by the thermal and everything also, I mean, the seasonality, everything plays a role into it. Why can't we just invent a gadget that captures all that and go back to the lab and replay it right and 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 it, it's it's not an easy problem to solve just like ai also like i mean is is they're finally inventing a device that can allow people to detect smell now questions can you replay smell right and so you imagine watching a movie and all of a sudden you can not only see it, but also you can feel it <laughs> 3d 4d 5d and of course the other most important couple of more things, right? Spectral efficiency. Why is that important? There's a lot of billions of dollars being spent, mm-hmm. right? So imagine like this, right? You're driving on a highway, it's two lanes, and I can have only two cars going in parallel. Okay. Is there a way for me to stack 10, 20, 30, 100 cars on top of it? And there's a technology called MIMO, but I think there's a lot of innovation that needs to happen so that you can improve how many bits per hertz I can pump, how many users I can have simultaneously utilizing the same channel. Mm-hmm. So there's another area, zero touch networks. Today we have massive amount of resources uh, and tools, people maintaining the networks. The question is, can we truly make it a zero touch? Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I think these are some of the areas. The above and beyond, it was, it was funny. I was listening to a, a podcast. They were talking about it was an AI topic, actually. It was interesting. I thought it's, it was talking about world hunger. Mm-hmm. The reason why they're talking about it is because it's about supply chain. So there was an interesting stat, which is today we produce close to like 10, 10 billion people worth of food. So we produce more food than people. But yet there's 30% of the world hunger, right? 
So what this means is that we're not able to take the foot where it needs to be and, and so on. And, and so I think, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, things out there one can explore. Amazing. That was awesome, Navy. Such a pleasure to have you have you join us here in person. We can't thank you enough for sharing your time. To close, we want to ask one fun question. Since we're all golfers, we're all golf fans, this is a variation on the standard question of who would you invite to a dinner party, but instead who you can have, you know, one dream foursome at any golf course in the world. Who are you taking with you, either living or dead? Where are you playing and why? Oh. That, that that's a tough one and i'll tell you it, it's fun to play with adil okay I'll, I, I, it, it's it's it doesn't matter how horrible your game is it's fun to play with it i don't know i mean it i mean it's is i never thought of it for every little stroke i mean they start throwing temper tantrums or, yeah. or anger so or terrell hatton won't be on your <laughs> that's right yeah and 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 also is is you know guys that recently I was on a trip in Scotland and and on a par three this guy was taking his eleventh shot so he was a hacker right I mean he was just like digging up the course even the caddy was telling him I said guy okay I think you should pick it up no I'm gonna finish it so so you can see right I mean who I but what I'll tell you is I don't think I, I I can name anyone I think I do enjoy playing with several to me I think the best hole is the 19th hole as I mentioned but I think it should be interesting to see how would we like uh, playing with because I, re- I recently started reading a book on uh, the golf is not a game of perfect and so some of the subtle tips that he provides amazing I mean he doesn't try to fix your game but I think but it provide certain pointers that makes a lot of a lot of sense so, you know, yeah Tiger Woods in the foursome, or Michael <laughs> Jordan or... you know yeah I think the, those, those 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 guys would inti- intimidate me I think yeah. so I, I don't think they will ever be on my force well, I think out out Pebble Beach yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's the ambience and atmosphere the the beauty and I mean, I played there. I mean, the front nine, the back nine, totally different. All of a sudden, the fog came in. It was just uh, spectacular. Anyway. Nibi, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us, and uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me.